Hey, Acre community, Pastor Brian here, and I'm so excited to be starting this new teaching series called Intimate. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be drawing from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7 to help form our understanding of what is a scripture-defined, Jesus-following perspective on intimacy look like. And just a heads up for parents and families that are watching together, some of the content today will be middle school and above as far as age appropriateness. So you might think about if you've got some littles in the room, a way to have them engage in something else that's going to help and foster their faith in Jesus. But for middle school and above, I do believe the content will be helpful to kind of start some conversations and enhance and develop the discipleship in your home. There's a professor named Sherry Turkle, and she does a lot of work on technology, how it affects us, how it affects our brains, how it affects our relationships. And she was in a conversation with uh, a younger person uh, about what this younger person wanted for a spouse, for a partner. And she said something, this younger person, to Sherry Turkle that caught her off guard. She said, "I, I want a robot for a lifelong companion. The type of robot that this younger person mentioned was uh, like, think Siri, but exponentially more developed and robust as far as personal engagement. And as the conversation developed, it made sense because uh, this younger person uh, had seen the pain that other people can offer and had felt the abandonment and the ache of the absence of what somebody needed in a really necessary relationship. Robots are safer, aren't they? But she went on to say this. She said, these robots can perform empathy in a conversation and perform is important there, perform empathy in a conversation about your friend, your mother, your child, or your lover, but they have no experience of any of these relationships. Machines not know, do not know the arc of a human life. They feel nothing of the human loss or love as we describe them. So this might sound like just a bizarre story to start off with. What does this have to do with anything? But I think it articulates something about us even more than we might think. You see, right now there is high levels of confusion about what intimacy is, what health with regards to intimacy is, the places where intimacy should be expressed, where it becomes hopeful and healthy for intimacy to show up. And there's also a corresponding fear about letting our guard down. What might happen if we let our guard down and practice intimacy? Will we be left in the dirt? Will our vulnerability be honored? Will it be received? And so because there's confusion and anxiety and nervousness about stepping into intimacy, we often settle for the eye-to-eye relationships in our life to be a lot more with a screen than another person. Especially in our time where we're coming out slowly, more slowly than we would want of social distancing and sheltering at home and limiting engagement with people that we love. This is really important for us to have a conversation about what intimacy is, how to step towards it. To shape our conversation, I wanna just look at three different elements of intimacy today. And we're gonna be looking at first some 
a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and also looking at some other aspects of scripture to help really develop our understanding of what intimacy is. And the first element that we're looking at is what I'm calling theocentric intimacy. Theocentric is kind of a, I don't know, a fancy word for just God-centered. Theos meaning God and centric obviously meaning centered. So, so theocentric intimacy is really this claim that, that we get to appreciate and step into intimacy with, with God in our relationship with God. For some of us, we may have grown up in traditions where theology is something that we value and esteem, but the idea of drawing near to God and understanding God as a parental figure that has really more love directed towards us than we could imagine is, is, is kind of frightening or new or different, or maybe is that even okay? But really in scripture, you see these, these two terms or these two realities of who God is especially in the Old Testament, kind of really in tension with each other. One is what you could call the unrivaled holiness of God. And it's the corresponding or the other reality of who God is, is the, the intimate nearness of God. God, and especially again in the Old Testament, is both un, unrivaled in his holiness, but also intimately near. Maybe you're familiar with this term, uh, uh, or this 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 thing in the Old Testament called the Ark of the Covenant. Israel would carry this around through the wilderness, and it was was believed to be the place where God's presence dwelt. God dwelt there in this Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant were, were these cherubim that were fashioned on top. Cherubim are like a spiritual, think, you know, like, like angel, think spiritual being, and they're they were carved into the top of the Ark of the Covenant in between was what was called the mercy seat. The uh the place where God was said to dwell. Invisible, spiritual, holy. And some stories in the Old Testament describe people getting too close and like like being struck down dead. God's holiness is so beyond our ability to fathom, fashion, and understand. He's unrivaled in his holiness. But then there's also this corresponding term or under or reality of, of, of his near intimacy. His psalms, you know, are are these love poems and or heartbreaking poems, and sometimes both to God. Where are you, God? And it sometimes is when you read them, it's like, whoa, can you even say that to God? It presupposes this intense relationship. It, sometimes it feels like, like a real heavy fight between a spout, spouses. Like, what's the deal, God? Why, where are you? Why are you showing up so late? So there's this intimacy and holiness connected to our understanding of God. And Kid, Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, he says, the mag in the end, in the end, when you think about this tension of God's unrivaled holiness and his intimate nearness expressed in the Old Testament, Derek Kidner says, the majesty in the end is undiminished, but the last word is, not, is given to intimacy. The majesty is undiminished, but the last word is given to intimacy. This theme that is like a tension in the Old Testament plays out, it really, it really is expressed in the person of Jesus who is without sin, but also is like so 
intimate with the people he talks with. Think of the leper that nobody's touched him forever, but Jesus looks him in the eye, grabs him, and says, I am willing to heal you. What intimate touch and words to somebody who was starved for it. Or the woman at the well who, in her shame, goes to draw water from the well in John 4 because, because she knows nobody's going to come in the middle of the day. So she goes in the middle of the day so she doesn't have to see anyone because she has this like history of relationships in her past and shame most likely is, is crippling her ability to be in relationship and to experience anything of intimacy. But who shows up? Jesus. And the longest conversation in all four of the Gospels happens between this woman who's trying to hide and this rabbi. Jesus is the one who is unrivaled in holiness, but also intimately near. Every one of us, by taking on our flesh, he expresses that. He's literally experiencing all the things that we experience, but as scripture says, without sin. So it's important to know that like just at the beginning of this, this idea of theocentric intimacy is something that you are invited to. You're invited to experience. If you grew up in a church tradition where it was more theological, abstract, rational reasoning, or there wasn't uh, any type of that modeled in your home where you can come to God with your needs, I just want to say to you that 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 is that's God's heart for him to be near you. There's this passage of scripture that articulates uh, what I'm talking about, but it will require some explanation. I'm going to read it. We're going to get hop into 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. And just to set this up a little bit, require some explanation to set this up a little bit. Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and in Corinth as a city is as much like many of our large cities on the West Coast where there's anything goes attitude and people are coming out of kind of living all sorts of crazy lives and finding Jesus and it's kind of messy and part of the mess is sexual immorality that's happening in the Corinthian church. And Paul's trying to speak directly to some of the unhealthy decisions that are being made that really kind of like erode the wholeness of their lives and keep them from this real intimate pursuit of Jesus together as individuals and community. So in verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Home, uh, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God in your bodies. Okay, a couple things I just want to mention. If you have ever experienced uh, anything that would, any type of, of trauma relating to sexuality or a person's actions directed towards you, I, I mean, as a pastor, I can't, I can't begin to apologize enough. And, and you know something of what Paul is talking about. There's something about the hap things that happen in our body that affect us. They affect how we think about uh, the past, how we think about the future, how we think about relationships. And Paul's, he's, he's naming that, that it's, that it's something that's, there's, there's something sacred about us 
And so when we're taken advantage of or hurt or harmed, it leaves a mark. Paul's wanting us to reckon with that. But, but correspondingly, he says, he said, don't you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? You see, a lot of these Corinthians that were learning to follow Jesus, they were still going to other temples to worship false gods. The best we can ascertain from looking at how Paul's talking. And Paul wants them to know, hey, you know what? That's not the temple. When you engage in X, Y, and Z at that temple, that's not the temple. You're the temple of the real God. This says something about the intimacy that God has with us. That he would not just not want us to approach him with our needs, certainly that, but that he would approach us and actually take up residence within our bodies in this mysterious union of physicality and spirituality. This is the theocentric intimacy that I'm talking about. It's not only that we have a relationship with God that is one of intimacy, but that he has sought to become so near to us by filling his followers with his own spirit. It's important to note too that as Paul goes on, he's saying, you know, this needs to be the way we understand all other aspects of intimacy. Our intimacy we have with Jesus needs to be the definition for every other expression of intimacy in our life. And part of that is, is yes, romantic intimacy needs to be defined by our pursuit of Jesus and the intimacy we have as priority primarily with God before all else. That's why he goes on to say is, he's honored God with your bodies. You were bought with a price. The language Paul is using is this, that is one of redemption from slavery. You are bought from slavery and you've been given not a tyrannical master of sin and idols, but the freeing, easy yoke of the master Jesus. So this theocentric unity is the thing that defines every other aspect of intimacy. It's not that we get to say, yeah, I have my relationship with God, but when I really have questions about my, my sexuality, I look at Maxim or Redbook or whatever blog, you know, that I want to go to. No, that scripture and a relationship with Jesus is the one, is the thing that defines us. Paul sees that the fact that we are bought with a price means that we live a life reflecting the high cost that Jesus paid for our salvation. But we also have a real need for spiritual, for, for relational intimacy. A theocentric spiritual intimacy is good, important, and necessary until we have that uh, in our lives. Really, there's this vacuum, as pa Pascal said, within us. We need that. But God has also created us for each other. We have this relational need for intimacy. Every one of us, no matter what life stage, relationship status we have, we all have a need for intimacy. So in looking at that, we're going to be looking at that over the next two elements of as we continue to develop this concept of what intimacy is. And so it, it, towards that end, we, we need to understand the sacredness of the other. The sacredness of the other. And this is something that, again, is communicated in 1 Corinthians 6. 19, you know, the, the very fact that we are temples of the Holy Spirit says something about not only ourselves, 
but also our friends, our family members, those that we aren't friends with or aren't family members. You see, Jesus is making a, or Paul is making a, 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 a statement about every follower of Jesus. They're, they're temples of the Holy Spirit. So when I'm interacting with you, if you're a follower of Jesus, then I'm, I'm interacting with more than a person. I'm interacting with somebody who carries in one measure or another the presence of God within their life. You see, this is the touchstone for, for, for just really understanding what personhood even is. And if, even if a person isn't like a follower of Jesus and filled with the Spirit, they bear the image of God. And so there's no escaping the sacredness of the other. And so we, when we think about this, you know, like if when we think about this, it's important to just understand when we, when we start to think about our, our relational needs, not just ours, but those that others have that we're in relationship with. And there's this principle that maybe would be helpful and uh, to unpack or to help us further develop this. It says, you know, we tend to lean in uh, when engaging in beauty. What do I mean by that? We tend to, we tend to lean in in relation, like when, when we see something that's beautiful, we tend to lean in towards it. When we recognize the worth of something, we lean in towards it. I've always loved writing, uh, whether it's a, a novel, a short story, a good essay, or a poem. And when I find something that is well-crafted, that I believe has value, I start to lean in towards it. This might be cars or carpentry, hunting, uh, or whatever. But when there's something of interest that we deem worthy, that we respect the craft, we tend to lean in towards it. And what I would say is, is that kind of an extension of what Paul is saying is that when you understand the sacredness of the other, when you understand that somebody bears the image of God, that they're filled with the Spirit of God, you, there's this necessary corresponding, I'm leaning in now. Right? I can't write you off. I'm not going gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm to excuse you as a problem or as an annoyance, as somebody that I just don't get. No, I'm... I'm recognizing the sacredness of the other. There's uh, this uh, Jewish philosopher named Martin Buber, and he wrote this book um, called I Thou. And he said, you can, there's two types of relating to people in the world. And one is I thou, and the other is I it. The I thou of relating to the world is you're recognizing the mystery and the sacredness of the other. And until you, until you, like start to recognize that sacredness of the other person, it's hard to actually have a meaningful relationship. So the other way of relating is I-it. When, when it's an I-it relationship, you are looking at the person as only helpful as they benefit you. It's almost like you take the like our economy and you you kind of the way of understanding the economy and you just employ that to relationships. Does this have a benefit for me? I will give as much cost as I can give only in terms of the benefit that it gives back to me. You assess relationships through cost benefit analysis using the tools of the market and the sacredness of interpersonal relationships. This um it's kind of culturally normative. So it's, we need to use the, 
resources of scripture to help us re-understand what it means to be a person. Buber knew, uh, you know, that, that we don't we don't have the resources to have like, you know, I thou relationships with every single person in our life. Nobody has that kind of margin. I don't care. I, you know, I don't care if you're retired, if the kids, if you're empty nesters, nobody has that margin to be able to have I thou relationships with everyone in their life. So there's an element of stewarding our energy to direct it towards recognizing the sacredness of certain people, not writing off other people, but not necessarily giving all of your energy to everyone. It's just impossible. So as we, as we establish that, that theocentric intimacy is the priority, it takes primacy for followers of Jesus. And then second, that everyone is is there's this say everyone has this sacred element to who they are the sacredness of the other is necessary as we as we build these two realities out we start to have the building blocks of what it looks like to 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 understand intimacy and then to start to engage in intimacy so the third element of intimacy is our just our universal need for intimacy we're going to hop out of 1 Corinthians here and just kind of take a look at some relationships throughout Scripture. Uh, first is in 1 Samuel 23, 16. Um, David is on the run from Saul, and he's in a cave. He's at his wit's end, and his friend Jonathan comes to him. And 23, 16, it says, And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh, and helped him find strength in God. A similar relationship dynamic in the book of Ruth, where Ruth says to Naomi, her mother-in-law, wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And then in John 13, the Last Supper, there's this picture of this young disciple leaning on the chest of his rabbi, Jesus. You see, these are foreign examples for us. In fact, many look at these stories and are like, wait, like that's an intimate friendship. That's not, that's not something as we would define as friendship. In fact, we've what we've done culturally is we've diminished the concept of friendship and connected it to something that probably would be more of acquaintance. But this biblical definition of friendship is something that we all have a desire for. I would say we've relegated intimacy, the intimacy that we all have a desire for, to spirituality or to sexuality and extracted it from friendship. So <laughs> if you Google search intimacy and probably don't, you'll see examples of romantic intimacy or something, you know, supposed to be like that. If you look at intimate prayer life, there's going to be stuff, but intimate friendships, not as much. And it's to our detriment. You see, Scripture has no problems talking about the intimacy that happens between two people that are close friends. And I would say, you know, 
our primary desire for connection is not just somebody to, uh, you know, enjoy something that we enjoy with, do something that we enjoy with, but it's really for somebody to know us on a level that goes beyond the surface. And of course, this is example, like Sherry Turkle mentioned, why people, it's scary, and so we avoid it, but we still hunger for it. Maybe you remember, or if you've read Catcher in the Rye, the uh, main uh, character in Catcher in the Rye is this young boy named Holden Caulfield, who is like super angsty, 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 angsty. He uh, runs or runs uh, away, so to speak, in New York City. And at one point in Catcher in the Rye, pays money for a prostitute, brings her to a room. And what happens there is just conversation. Here's this young guy. What does he really need in the end of the day? What is he paying the money for? It's for someone to look him in the eyes. Someone to affirm him. Someone to talk with him. Someone to pat him on the shoulder and say it's okay. A real world example of this uh, was described in the podcast, The Butterfly Effect, um, where a person reached out um, to a company that makes porn on demand. Didn't know that existed until I did some of this research. Uh, but with this request, that was strange. With the money that he gave this company, he asked for a woman to be fully clothed, sitting on the floor, looking at the camera, saying, it's okay. I love you. I know it's hard, but it's not going to end like this. We can go forward. There was no place. There's nobody to tell him that. He didn't know how to find that. Get a craving for that. You see, here's the problem for what when we take that type of intimacy out of friendships, we, we don't know where to find it. And so that's the whole central powerful point of whether it's that story or, or Holden Caulfield and the cultural critic and Professor Alan Jacobs says this about the example of that, that anonymous man with that, that heartbreaking request. He says, why might a man suffering as this nameless man was suffering turn for help to people to, who make pornography? Perhaps because porn is fantasy in the sense of a dream world which your desires are fulfilled. But at least sometimes what we want is not sex as such, but rather to live out a dream of human connection, a dream of warmth stronger and more comforting even than the warmth of bodies. I remember listening to a psychologist in an interview a few years ago, and he was talking about sex addiction. And he said, what we find is that people addicted to pornography are not primarily looking for the physical gratification, but they're looking for a face that will smile to them and without words say, you are beloved. You see, our desire for intimacy is much more basic than our physical desires. This is incredibly important for us to understand. It's incredibly important for two reasons, at least. One, if we don't recognize our need for intimacy and start to find ways where we can trust people and let our guard down and open up our lives and have someone open their lives to us, 
If we don't do that, we will live with deficient and diminished relationships. Oftentimes, this is where adultery happens. Where in the hustle and grind of life, a husband and wife are not able to affirm and love and create an intimate environment. And one party out there in some, or somewhere, some other aspect of their life finds somebody who sees a part of them and affirms that. And all of a sudden the guards go down and an affair happens. What's really at stake there? Is it the sex? No. It's the real need for someone to see them. Again, our needs for affirmation and intimacy are much more basic than our sexuality. And second, not only will we live deficient relational lives if we don't have intimate friendships, the type described by David and Jonathan, John and Jesus and Ruth and Naomi, but also if we don't value and apprise intimate friendships, we will other single people. We won't offer single people the resources that they need. I remember a couple of years ago talking with a man who was, was single. And he, he, he didn't want, he wanted to be single. He wanted to just live a single life, at least for a period of time. And I, but I remember he was, he was, it was almost like he was, he was just writhing with internal just pain as he says, I look all around and I see the only places where the type of relationship that I need happening is, is in romantic relationships. And so I'm single. I want to be single. But every time I look around to see what I need, the need is really only happening between a romantic couple. And I'm, I said, I remember I apologized to him. I'm like, in my mind, the church has not done as good as we could have done. Because he needed to know that there could be a friendship that was closer than a brother. Where there is somebody that could know and see him, be available to his needs, and affirm him in his gifts. And in not a simplest, simplistic kind of, you know, quick way, but in a I'm with you, Ruth and Naomi way. In a John and Jesus way. In a help you find strength in the Lord, David and Jonathan type of way. So these two reasons, the relationship to relational deficiency, if we don't embrace intimate friendships and the othering of single people are too small or two major reasons, but there's many, there's others why we need to find ways to have intimacy in our friendships. So here's a quick challenge. Thinking about what we've talked about, the spirituality, the theocentric intimacy that we have with God, the sacredness of the other, that the, that person is an image of God, that person is filled with the Spirit, and then our own universal, not just our universal needs for intimacy. Thinking about that, I want you to risk being, in the words of one author, scary close with a friend this week. And... Just reach out. Can we go for a walk? Can we get coffee? Can we FaceTime? And ask them, could we make a habit of sharing how we're feeling, a need we have, and an affirmation towards the other? Maybe we do it every couple of days. 
Maybe we do it once a week. If we just commit to that, where I'm going to share how I'm feeling. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling happy. I'm feeling crummy. Share a need we have. I need this right now. And share an affirmation. I see you doing this. I think that simple act will unlock new levels of relationship depth that we all crave for. I think about, um, you know, it's Easter this past week. So I've been thinking about a lot. I've been reading the Easter stories and, and uh, one that story, an Easter story that like always strikes me is, is Mary approaching the empty tomb. In the Gospel of John, she approaches the empty tomb and she sees two angels at, at both sides of where Jesus laid. One commentator says that John is telling the story in a way that communicates that this is the new mercy seat. Just as the cherubim on top of the ark with the empty spot was the mercy seat, the place where God dwelt, here is the new mercy seat with the angels beside and in between. There's the place where Jesus laid but is now resurrected. And Mary approaches freely with confidence and confusion, trying to figure out what's happening, this new mercy seat. And she finds herself there on it herself, right there in the between the angels. And then somebody taps her on the shoulder, so to speak. She turns around, wonders who it is, thinks it's the gardener, but then hears her name, Mary. And she recognizes it's Jesus. The intimacy that you're invited to with God is to freely approach the new mercy seat, the place of God's victory, and hear your name said by your rabbi, by your savior. And when you know that he speaks your name as you approach the new mercy seat, the place that is approachable and symbolizes God's victory, when you know that he speaks your name there, you can have the courage to get scary close with another person and let your guard down because you know ultimately he's still speaking your name. Come what may, he's not going to leave you by your side. And also you can have the strength, the energy to know that he doesn't just speak your name. He speaks countless others, which means that countless others that you can car in contact with today, this week, are worthy of that same respect, love, and intimacy.